Well, we're continuing this morning in our sermon series. What's the name of our series? Fearless Q. We are tackling those tough questions that you have thrown towards your uh, pastors. Uh, The first week we dealt with that intimidating and awesome doctrine of predestination. Last week, Michelle Tepper uh, led us in a discussion about the topic, Is the Bible Sexist? And this morning, especially appropriate, I think, for our 4th of July weekend, we turn to another pile. So here's the pile. And this pile contains all questions that are kind of of a similar theme. So let me read a few of them to you. One says, with the Supreme Court's ruling on marriage, what does that do to our families and to our view of God? One asks, how do Christians give a fair and loving but Christian response to all that our culture is saying, and how do we bring our children back? And then this one, this nation was formed under God. What can we as Christians do to get our nation back to God? And I look out and I see a lot of heads doing this, and so you understand the the, the theme really is about this changing culture of ours, the changing mores, the changing value system, and a seeming distancing of ourself from uh, our, our foundation, our biblical foundation. So I'm going to summarize all of those questions in that pile with this question. Are we a nation under God? Are we a nation under God? And I thought I'd start this morning with a quiz. Now, I'm telling you right now, you need to vote. You have to vote on one of the answers here. So I'm going to count, and uh, if you don't, we will keep doing it until all of you stick your neck out and, and vote. The, the idea of one nation under God, what inspired those words? Those words that appear in our Pledge of Allegiance, where did the inspiration for those words arise from? All right, so you're going to have four choices, and you can take a look at them up here. The, the inspiration for one nation under God arose came out of the Declaration of Independence. Don't vote yet. Declaration of Independence. That's one choice to you. The the second choice is the the Federalist Papers. The third choice, C, is the Bill of Rights. And the fourth choice is a sermon preached by a friend of Pastor Mark. So those are your your four choices, all right? So you ready to vote? Where did the words under God, where were they inspired that went into our Pledge of Allegiance? All right, where were they inspired? You gotta vote. First question, first answer, the Declaration of Independence. How many think that's it? Raise your hand. Declaration of Independence. All right. All right, the second one is the Federalist Papers. How many think it's the Federalist Papers? And you're proud that you know what the Federalist Papers are. (laughs) Third, how many think it's the Bill of Rights? Bill of Rights. How many think it was a sermon preached by a friend of Pastor Mark's? (laughs) The answer is D. And let me tell you the story. When I went to St. Andrews, I met a retired Scottish minister named George Doherty. George was a, a wonderful guy. He took me under his wing for two years. He invited me into his home. He mentored me on preaching, drove me all over Scotland to show me his beloved country. For you golfers, he even got me into the Royal and Ancient Golf Club twice, which is a big deal. Doherty was a real friend and mentor to me for those two years. Before George Doherty went to St. Andrews in retirement, he was the pastor of New York Avenue Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C., also known as Lincoln's 
church. It was only a few blocks away from the White House, and it was where Abraham Lincoln worshipped. On, Jan- on February 7th, 1954, President Dwight Eisenhower was sitting in Lincoln's pew when George Dougherty preached a sermon under God. And in that sermon, he made the uh, claim that the words under God ought to be added to our Pledge of Allegiance because, as he put it, our present Pledge of Allegiance could be the pledge of any country. I could hear little Muscovites repeat a similar pledge to their hammer and sickle flag with equal solemnity, unquote. And so the next day, Eisenhower and he took, had called upon his friends in Congress and started the ball rolling. And that flag day, June 14th, 1954, the president signed a bill adding the words, under God, to our Pledge of Allegiance. So what do you think of that? <laughs> so for those of you who are voting D just to make fun of me, nanny, 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 right back at you. Remember, this was at the outset of the Cold War, and we were, there was a strong move to differentiate the United States from atheistic Soviet Union. And the leaders of our nations on both sides of the aisle were eager to declare that we were indeed one nation under God. Can you imagine such a thing happening today? And now, 60 years later, many, many are wondering, is it still true? Are we still one nation under God? To begin my message, I'd like to uh, offer a few personal thoughts. First of all, I'm proud to be an American. And I'm a patriotic guy. Look at my ensemble, for crying out loud. I'm proud to live in a land where idiots can rant in the middle of the public square about how horrible the United States is and not be be beheaded for it. I'm proud to, that we have repeatedly sacrificed young lives and resources in the global battle against tyrannical evil, most notably in two horrific world wars. There's plenty for us to repent of as a nation, the horrors of slavery and horrific civil war, instances where we have inserted ourselves into world affairs that we, where we did not belong. But on the whole... Our nation has been a force for great good in its 240 years of existence. And despite what you read in the press, many many people in the world, many of the world's citizens would agree. One of the ways I think that you can test an objective test of the greatness of a nation is what I call the gate test. The gate test. What's the gate test? Here's the test. Throw open the gates of our nation's borders and then watch which way the people run. I was in East Berlin in 1985. And all of you will know what I'm talking about when I talk about a divided city and the Berlin Wall. I was there when the Berlin Wall was still in place. I had the chance to cross over into East Berlin. And at one point, I stood at, the, at Checkpoint Charlie, and I watched as workmen from the east were, uh, were addressing some issues, working on the road on the eastern side of Checkpoint Charlie. There was a great line that went across the middle of the road that divided the free half of Berlin from the communist half of Berlin. And there were soldiers standing there with Kalashnikov rifles with their feet up to the 
up to the line, their back to the west, and their guns aimed at the workmen to the east to make sure that they did not run to freedom. So whatever is wrong, whatever you might say about our nation, the continued verdict of millions of would-be immigrants is this. Given a chance, they would love to live in this country. And so with those thoughts as a backdrop, I return to our question. Are we a nation under God? Or maybe, as I think some are implying, are we still a nation under God? And if we aren't, what are we going to do to get back there? In one sense, I would say, of course we are a nation under God. Of course we are. If God is sovereign, which I made the case for two weeks ago, then every nation is a nation under God. Syria is a nation under God, and Turkey, and Iraq, and Kurdistan... All of those nations are under God. Psalm 24.1 declares, The earth is the Lord's, and everything in it, the world, and all who live in it. Every nation on earth is a nation under our God, whether or not they acknowledge Him. But this phrase meant something more than that to those who first wrote it. I believe it meant that we were a nation that acknowledged we were under God that credited our prosperity and our freedom to God's blessing. And some even spoke of the United States as the new Jerusalem, a place of refuge and of opportunity. And for millions and millions, this has been so. But something has happened in the last 60 years, hasn't it? Lawsuits to remove under God from the Pledge of Allegiance. Efforts to remove in God we trust from our currency. A court battle to remove the Ten Commandments from the walls of federal buildings. Abortion on demand. Marriage redefined. Gender undefined. Whatever way we were a nation under God 60 years ago, that is slipping away, isn't it? And so what do we do? How do we live as believers in a culture that is increasingly indifferent and even antagonistic towards our faith? Well, the first century Christians understood something about this. In fact, the, the Apostle Peter wrote a letter to first century Christians who were scattered across the empire because they had come into a time of great persecution and oppression. And so they began to flee to safety. And Peter, in this very antagonistic culture, writes his first letter to them. Remember, this is Peter, the great apostle. And I want to turn to our text 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. 1 Peter 2, 11 through 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as free men, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. 
Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. This is the word of the Lord. Holy God, speak to us now through your word, these words from your spirit, as we understand what it means to live as your people in this time and place. Amen. So how is it that we cope with a nation that seems every day more and more to reject the the very God upon whose principles this nation was established? And I think the first thing that Peter tells us, he warns us, is we must remember we are refugees. Say refugees. In verse 1, Peter calls his readers sojourners and exiles. Sojourners and exiles. But the real meaning of the word in Greek is foreign refugees. Refugees. We have been watching, haven't we, over the last months and even year, the stream of refugees, particularly Syrian refugees who are fleeing the, uh, the uh, atrocities of ISIS, fleeing for their lives. And we who watch from a distance, we, we, we respond as we, as we see all of this happening. Some of us, some of us say we respond with, with pity. Some of us respond with fear or suspicion. But I'll bet no one in this place has responded with this thought. I'm just like them. When we see the accounts of these refugees fleeing for their lives into a foreign land, we don't say, I'm just like them. Why? Because we have a country. Because we are citizens. Because we think we belong here. And when we see our nation shifting and drifting, it angers and frightens us. But Peter, Peter puts all of this in perspective for us. He says... We are not, first of all, citizens of the United States or any other country. We have been adopted into God's family through Jesus Christ. And when that happened, we became citizens of heaven. So there is a sense in which we are refugees in our own land. We don't belong here, not ultimately. Because we belong to Jesus, because his spirit lives inside of us, we long for a home that is a true reflection of the heart and holiness of God, where poverty and immorality and violence and greed are no more. But that is not here. Not on this earth. Not even in this great land. We long to think of the United States as Jerusalem. But the U.S. is more like Babylon. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jerusalem, of course, was the headquarters of the Jewish faith. It was where God's temple was. It it represented God's alignment and presence with his people. But there came a time in their continued disobedience to God that the Jews were kicked out. They were led into exile. And the place they were led into exile was Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, Babylon was a beautiful city. In one of the ancient wonders of the world was in Babylon. Uh, And in fact, when the time came that the Jews were able to return to their homeland, many wanted to stay. They liked it there. They liked being in Babylon. It was a beautiful city, but it was still exile. It was not their home. And as lovely as our Babylon might be, we are still refugees in exile. And we long for a heavenly home. So it should not surprise us that the habits and the instincts and the idolatries of this culture seem foreign and disturbing to us. And if you think this is Jerusalem, you're going to be disappointed. In fact, your patriotism can even lead you to idolatry. 
I know those who would call themselves Christians whose love of country and flag far exceeds their love of Christ, cross, and church. And that is idolatry. But if you realize that this beautiful land is nevertheless Babylon, a temporary place of exile, then it helps put everything in its proper perspective. So with that in in mind, how do we live as refugees in Babylon? And Peter gives us two pieces of advice. First of all, he says, live honorably. Live honorably. Verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Where have we heard something like this before? How about the Sermon on the Mount? Remember when Jesus said, hey, you're to be salt in a putrefying world. You're to be light in a place of darkness. Let your light so shine that when your, even your enemies look at you, they will give glory to God who is in heaven. Peter is just repeating the very things that he heard his Lord preach that day on that hill next to the Sea of Galilee. We often pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Next fall, we will spend an entire season in the Lord's prayer. But one way that we redeem a chunk of Babylon is for ourselves to live light, salty lives of gentle insurrection. Lives that undermine the decaying and hopeless and pointless moral structure that we find ourselves living in. So do you want ours to be one nation under God? then you start by being one person under God. You cannot speak for the nation, but you can speak for yourself. If you want our nation to be more moral and generous and compassion and just, then you better be that kind of person. There's nothing more destructive to the witness of Christ than those who preach one thing and live an entirely different way. So if you protest the removal of prayers from the schools but don't pray with your children or your grandchildren at home? If you protest the redefinition of marriage, but dishonor your wedding bed and break your marriage vows? If you protest the removal of the Ten Commandments from public buildings, but continue to covet or lie or dishonor your parents, then you only add fuel to the fire of those who find religion to be irrelevant and even evil. If you want us to be a nation under God, then you'll be a person under God. You live honorably, Peter says. And then his second admonition is live free. Live honorably and live free. In verse 16, Peter admonishes his readers to live as free men. Would you read those words? Go. Live as free men. Now, many of his readers were, in fact, not free. They were slaves. And even those who were not slaves were running for their lives because of persecution. So whether by station or persecution, they were not living in freedom, which makes Peter's admonition to them all the more extraordinary. Live as free men, he says. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you have been set free. So live like it. And I wonder how many of us, even in this sanctuary, are truly living in that kind of freedom. We feel the morality of our culture drifting. We look at our political leaders with equal doses of contempt and disgust. We believe that the future of our nation depends upon one judicial appointment. And all of these things end up binding us up in anxiety. 
We may say that we are the land of the free and the home of the brave, but we American Christians often speak and think and live and pray more like helpless victims. So you want to set all of this in perspective? How about this? How about the last three words of the text earlier that I read? You see the last three words of Peter's admonition in the text I read? Honor the emperor. Do you know who was the emperor at the time that he was writing these words? It was Nero, the craziest, most bloodthirsty man ever to sit on a Roman throne. Nero was the one who probably set Rome on fire and he blamed the Christians for it. It was Nero who would string Christians up on a post along the, the roads of, of Rome, douse them with tar and set them on fire to light the streets. It was Nero who wrapped them up live in animal skins and then threw them to wild beasts to tear them apart for sport. It was Nero who executed Peter. It was Nero who executed Paul. If you find our politicians to be corrupt and egotistical, you might want to set all of that in perspective. These Christians had real reason to be afraid of their culture and still Peter could say, live free. Because he knew that even in the end, Nero is a pawn in the hands of Almighty God. I don't think many of us are living this kind of freedom. I think we are bound in fear and anxiety and even in the idolatry of believing that if only we could elect the right person, everything would be made right. We would get our nation back again. Let me tell you this. No matter who is sitting in the Oval Office on January 20th, 2017, Jesus Christ will still be sitting on his throne. And if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. Now, does this mean that we ought not exercise our rights and our responsibilities as citizens, as Christian citizens? Absolutely not. Jesus paid his taxes. Paul appealed to Caesar as was his right as a Roman citizen. We see them using the political system to their advantage. And I'm proud when I see members engaged in our political process, running for office, seeking signatures, caravanning to Olympia for a prayer rally. And I find it shameful that something like 19 million evangelical Christians either did not register or did not vote in the last presidential elections. It's shameful. But in the end, after doing all that we can as good citizens of this nation, in the end, Peter would say, relax, relax. Live in the freedom of knowing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Live honorably, live free, and finally, this, be prepared. I jump ahead to chapter 3 of this, and it's a very familiar text, chapter 3, verse 15. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Be prepared to give an answer for why you are who you are, how you live the way you live. If you live lives of conspicuous honor, but are not prepared to explain that it is the Holy Spirit who lives in you, who redeems you, who has transformed you, then you have wasted your witness. 
If you live free from the anxiety of those around you because you know that Jesus Christ is Lord, you know that the sovereign God is in control of all things, but you do not share that message, then you have wasted your witness. If all your friends see is that you are trying hard to be a good, stoic person who behaves properly and remains calm in a time of tumult, they will never understand that the only way this nation will ever turn around, if it turns around, is through revival, and only Jesus can bring revival. And by the way, and we're not going to like this part, I won't get many amens on this one, Revival usually comes through persecution, not prosperity. We American Christians are arrogant to think that we will be spared persecution. And just ask the Chinese church, which is flourishing, which is exploding under the hand of persecution. And who, by the way, pray for the American church that we might have persecution so that we might be purified. I haven't prayed that way for the American church I'm glad our Chinese friends can do it. I can't bring myself to, but it is a historical fact. Persecution leads often to revival. I was flying back from the General Assembly. Once again, every time I go to our General Assembly, our annual meeting, I'm reminded how grateful I am to be a part of this denomination. Christ-centered, prayerful, unified in mission and essentials. It's just a gift. I I continue to laud the elders in this church who had the the vision and the wisdom to say, we need to make this move. So it was great. On the way back from that, I was in the airplane, and I, I noticed a woman who got up and made her way forward, presumably to go to the restroom. She got up to the front, and then she began to try to open the cockpit door. It wouldn't open, obviously, and so she pushed harder, harder on it and began to kind of put her shoulder into it. It didn't open. She kind of began to pound on it and work the handle really violently to the cockpit. Her husband saw what she was doing. He was sitting near me and he called out to her, to the left, to the left. (laughs) So she began to move the handle to the left. (laughs) Finally, the flight attendant rushes up and directs her to the bathroom door and saved her. Yeah, you know, she saved her from what I'm sure would have been a very exciting encounter with the air marshals. This woman was desperate for relief and she didn't know where to find it. You know where I'm going. This nation is desperate for relief. And we are knocking on all the wrong doors. If we are ever going to become a nation under God, and I think that's a big if, it will be because disciples of Jesus Christ live honorably, they live free, and they courageously point to those who are desperate for relief. They point them to the only one who can provide it. Our sovereign, all-powerful, gracious Lord Jesus Christ, to whose name be glory and honor both now and forevermore. Amen. Father, we lift uh, our nation before you on this day. We thank you for the foresight of our forefathers and foremothers who put in place a unique experiment in the history of the world. Uh, An experiment that believed that we were granted rights by our Creator. And upon those unalienable rights began to build a new kind of a nation. We confess the things that are wrong about us. We confess our avarice. But Lord, we also thank you 
that this has been a place of refuge and safety and goodness for so many centuries. But Lord, as we watch things begin to slip in a direction that disturbs us, I pray that we would remember this is still a temporary earthen vessel. One day we shall be with you in heaven where the thing that we long for most will be realized. And until that day, God, I pray that you will help us, citizens of your kingdom, to live well and responsibly in this part of your world, this beautiful Babylon, which is nonetheless a place of exile for us. May the way we live, may the freedom with which we live it be a reflection and a pointer to the only one who can bring revival to this or any place else, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.